Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. So we're working our way steadily through this wonderful book that God has given us. Now up to chapter 5. Please follow along as I read this morning. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest, taken from among men, is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset by weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. Let's pray. Lord God, watch out over what we do today, we pray. Here in this service, this preaching, and during the listening. Lord, you must work through the preaching and the preacher and also through the listeners who hear what is preached, that your people might be edified, raised up together, departing from childish ways, Lord, but coming unto full maturity in you. That is our goal here, Lord, is to be mature Christians. Help us in that endeavor through these words that we study this day, that your Son, Jesus Christ, might be known by us and confessed by us as the high priest he truly is, and that you, God, may be glorified for your perfect plan in providing such a great high priest to minister unto us in bringing us to you. We ask your help in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said last week when we opened up this chapter that this seems to be an entire chapter about ignorance. Ignorance realized and ignorance exposed. And then in the middle of it, a, a new high priest who can help us. And he will teach us to put off those things which keep us ignorant as we follow his pattern. He is a great high priest, this Jesus whom God sent. And we need him to deliver us from ignorance. That's what I've entitled this series in chapter 5, Deliver Us from Ignorance. And God is faithful to do just that and has sent Jesus Christ to be our teacher. He has sent this word to us through the writer of Hebrews that we might become wiser. We might know and even go back in time as we have been here and have been looking at the high priestly ministry of the past years under the Mosaic law. Those priests of old, those high priests were prefigurements, were foreshadowing of the one true great high priest who would come that is realized in Jesus Christ himself. And even here we go back in the scriptures to be reminded or to learn anew what those high priests did and why they did it. Last week we looked at the appointment of the high priest 
This week we'll look at the ministry of the high priest as we touched it a little bit in compassion last week. And then finally we will look at the honor of the high priest. The honor of the high priest. We've looked already, if we need to understand this high priestly appointment, we need to understand that it is one that is humanly derived. That every high priest from the past was taken from among men, and he was appointed then for men. He came from men, and then he was given back to men as a servant unto them and bringing them to God. He was appointed specifically to offer gifts and to offer sacrifices pertaining to God in the area of sin and fellowship, gifts of fellowship with God and those that cover sins as well. He was to administrate those, but he was to do that in a ministry that was touched off with and undergirded by compassion. Verse 2 says he can have compassion because he was a man and then given back to men to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He then as well can have compassion on men. And as we said last week, this compassion is a very unique Greek word in that it is a balancing word. It is a word that comes between the extremes of human nature. On the one hand, there's apathy. To be apathetic or to feel nothing as the Greek Stoics would prevent themselves from having any sort of emotional involvement, this word stands in the middle of that. But also this word stands against pathos, having too much or extreme passion about all things. So rather than be heartless and senseless, or to be overwhelmed with exuberance and emotionality, this word comes in the middle of it. And so he has an appropriate level of both compassion and sympathy but is not over-sympathetic such that he does not as well measure out the truth in its proper and appropriate places. So his ministry was one of compassion. Uh, secondly, his ministry, ministry is, uh, was accomplished in weakness. And so this morning we want to look at this weakness of the high priests of old and attach that to it as we go along later in this chapter to the humanness of Jesus Christ as well. So Lord, please deliver us from ignorance. His ministry, this ministry of a great high priest, is accomplished in weakness. Verse 2 again, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset by weakness. And the key understanding here is the weakness of humanity that then ministers unto the weakness of humanity. That God provided a weak minister, uh, not a superior minister, but one in weakness to relate to the people of God. And he appointed them uh, to function in such a way that they would be helped by this type of a high priestly ministry. There is ignorance, that is true, and sometimes there's ignorance just in the area of sin. If you've read Leviticus, you know that if you were going to keep all of that in your head all the time, and to make sure that you didn't have any single infraction at any particular time during the day, you would be, as James says, a perfect man. But you're not, and they were not. 
And it was easy for them to fall into ignorant sin, unrepented. And God provided for ignorant sin. Sometimes we think, well, you know, the policeman will pull us over on the street. And, and he said, did you realize you were going too fast? And, and you say, well, how fast was I going? And he said, well, you were going 87 miles an hour. And the sign back there says you can only go 80. And you'll say, well, my goodness, I didn't see the sign. And he will say something like, well, ignorance is no excuse. You're required to know the law. But isn't it interesting, though God requires us to know the law, he also understands that man in his weakness is ignorant and will sin ignorantly, and he provided a way for that to be taken care of, even under the Mosaic system. If you look at Leviticus chapter 4, turning back in your Bible, and by the way, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Leviticus and some numbers today. The ministry of the high priest is pointed out here unto the people. And I read beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins, listen, unintentionally. So if a person sins unintentionally, or ignorantly we might say, against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, Notice even this, if the anointed priest sins, so even if the priest himself in his weakness sins, bringing guilt on the people. Did you notice that if the priest sins, it actually isn't just on him. It says bringing guilt on the people. Leadership always has a greater degree of responsibility, bringing guilt on the people. Then it says, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now, what I would like you to do, and if you young people out there want to earn some extra points, you can count up how many times I read or say before the Lord this morning. This is a key to high priestly ministry. The priest brings people to God. The ministry of sacrifices to be done before God, it is about approaching God. So let me read verse 4 again of Leviticus 4. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord of God. Lay his hand upon the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord. By the way, this laying on of the hands is perhaps not understood too well by us. It's not just a, a rather casual touching of the head of the beast, but it was actually a rite of transference. It was done so that the person doing it and all of those who were watching would be realizing that there was a transference of the guilt of the person in sin onto the animal who was being slain in their place. And so the placing of the hand was not just a light touch, but actually a pressing down upon, and that would be visually evident to all people, that the hands were being pressed down upon this animal, transferring from the guilty one to the animal the responsibility, if you will, for his sin. And then it would be dealt with by God, because it must be dealt with before God. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. 
The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And by the way, even when we say tabernacle of meeting, we're not there to meet with one another. It's not fellowship time and fun time. Let's see our friends and hang. That's what they say these days, hang out. I've always wondered what that exactly means. Which, you know, We used to hang clothes out on the line. I think it's kind of like that, flapping in the breeze. But that's just for free this morning. But the reality is it's before the Lord uh, that this is to be done, and there is blood involved. And so also, kids, if you're taking notes and want extra points as well, how many times do I say blood this morning, blood is priestly ministry. Which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So the comparison here is with Christ and the high priests of old. They share a mutual weakness due to their humanity. However, the comparison ends, it ends here when we deal with a priest in sin. Though all the high priests who came before who could fall into sin or were weak themselves in sin, Jesus Christ was tempted like unto us, yet without sin. He was the perfect shepherd. He was the perfect high priest. So our great high priest was human and able to understand and have compassion on his fellow men, yet he was never guilty of sin, either intentional sin or unintentional or ignorant sin. I want to read again in Leviticus chapter 4 this about unintentional sin. Verse 13, if you'll skip down there. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, so even if the congregation altogether mutually sin against the Lord, God has made provision for this if they do it unintentionally. And the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty. So there is guilt. He's not saying there isn't guilt, but it's about unintentional guilt. Look at verse 14. When the sin which they have committed becomes known. So sometimes when you're ignorant, you don't know you've done it, but when it's made known, now something needs to be done. So God doesn't provide for unintentional or ignorant sin by ignoring it, but rather when it comes to light, then this. When it becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Notice who lays their hands on the head of the bull. Again, there's a leadership position of the elders representing the people to God who then claim the sin as their own and lay their hands on the head of the bull, signaling and signifying, we are all sinners. You know, I think we could use a few rites like that sometimes in the church to bind us together, couldn't we? 
See, what are you saying, Pastor? You say that we're sinners? Let me, let me think on that. And now let me answer clearly and definitively. Yes, you're all sinners, and you all sin unintentionally and intentionally, and so do I. Church isn't the place where we lie about that. It's the place where we acknowledge that. And I'm not saying we give license to sin. Obviously, they have to be taken care of. But I am saying that there is a unity and a harmony of being sinners that is being presented in Hebrews. And compassion is part of it. Even when we restore a brother who's in sin, it is to be with compassion, with a heart, because we're sinners and likely to sin. Look it up in your Bibles, Galatians 6, verse 1. I must move on. Verse 16, Leviticus 4, The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, he shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar, and he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do it. So the priest shall make, and here is a wonderful, glorious, but painful word, he shall make atonement for them. Atonement Someone must die. Blood must be spilt in the place of sinners. He shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it, and, he shall, and it shall be burned. <clears throat> As he burned the first bull, it is a sin offering for the assembly. Now, some of you might ask why did they take it outside the camp? The whole thing that happened with Moses and the tabernacle was new. Never before in the history of mankind had God condescended to dwell with his people visibly. But he did so in shelter, sheltering himself from the people and the people from him by being in the holiest of holy places covered by a veil. So the approach to God was a privilege never before known by man except for at brief moments in time when God would appear in the Old Testament. The privilege to come to him, to meet with him, to know him, to request of him, to sacrifice before him was a great dispensation of grace in that age. But yet, the entirety of the life of Israel, the setup of Israel in the land, was almost entirely symbolic. 
and particularly the tabernacle that was made that would later become a temple, and the, the sacrificial system that was there, and the ceremonial system that was attached to it, and even the food law system that was all part of it, symbolized the coming kingdom presence of God on earth. And the people of God being now so privileged with the presence of God, holiness in their midst, that everything that was not holy was to be kept away. So anything that was unholy now must be taken outside of the camp. Anything that was unclean. And you just had a transference of sin onto this animal that now must be taken outside the camp, symbolically saying sin can't stay among God's people. It must be dealt with. It must be removed. That's even why there is church discipline in the church today because we cannot allow unrepentant sin to stay inside God's people because it will defile the whole. The life of Israel was to train God's people to hate their own sin, to avoid it, and even when they symbolically transferred it to an animal, they would realize that some sacrifice is coming who would ultimately take care of this, but year by year and day by day, they had to take care of it this way and remove the unclean element, the defilement, from the holy people of God. Now you can read your Old Testament differently. It's all about approaching God, who is holy, who cannot have sin around him. And they were trained in this method. Put sin away outside the camp. Numbers 15, don't turn there, I'll just read it. Keep your finger in Leviticus, we're going there soon. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. That is a glorious statement. When you do it the way God says, you're forgiven. You shall have one law. And this is even the law of equity. Where do we get that you should treat treat the alien and the citizen the same way. We got it from God's law, not our law. Listen to this. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally. Not just for the Jews, but for the Jews and anybody who's with them. For him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. God is an equitable God. There should never be favoritism for there is none in God. Again, we've just solved the race problems religiously. I want to make a couple comments, and the comments I'd like to make are in the area where we may transgress, if you allow me to use that term, and seeing that God has provide for, provided for ignorant and unintentional sin, it could lead some to say, well, I might as well stay as ignorant of sin as I can, not read my Bible, not know the law, thereby God will be okay with that. Uh, let me just say, as soon as you've said that in your mind, it is now an intentional sin, not done in ignorance, it's done blatantly. And we need to recognize that there is no biblical teaching. Let me see if I can say this very clear. There is no biblical teaching 
for a sacrifice being acceptable for unrepentant, defiant, or deliberate patterns of sin. There is no provision for this. None. Flagrant sinners and open violators were to be cut off from Israel without atonement and were cursed of God, so says the commentator Lenski. They were to be, as we've already said, put outside the camp, away from the people whom they are defiling. Come near to God. God invites you, come near to God. Be close to me, but be ye holy. Unclean cannot come before God. I want to highlight a couple of sacrificial violations or holy trespasses that would result in that person being cut off from among Israel. We've talked about the compassion of God, and that must be emphasized, but we also must talk about the justice and rectitude of God's ways. In Leviticus 7 now, turn your Bibles there to verse 20. Peace offerings were to be made before the Lord, and peace being we're trying to keep peace with God or restore peace of God uh, because of who we are and what we have done, and offerings were made on in this regard, particularly an understanding of being unclean. But listen to this in verse 20. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord. Did you see that? If it belongs to God, if God says you offer this and you leave it, if you eat it, if you take it back, if you take it back, Eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord. Listen, while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. In other words, you would be ushered outside the camp of God's people. You would be, if you will, excommunicato. You would be no longer considered part of the people. You'd be alone on earth. You would be the literal army of one, which means you're a lone sheep and dead. People banded together because the world is a dangerous place, which we're starting to find out once again. In Leviticus 7, skipping down a couple of verses to verse 25, even sacrificial <clears throat> portions were prohibited from, from being eaten, and we find some laws of great import there because you were cut off for breaking them. Verse 25 says, For whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, he shall not eat, listen now, he shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beasts. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Why? Why? No blood pudding? The Mongols used to ride their horses across the plains, and when they ran out of, ran out of food, they would sometimes make a cut on the animal's neck and suck the blood to keep themselves going and have sustenance. What's wrong with that? Sounds pretty smart. What's up with blood? 
Why blood? If you read the law of God, if you read God's book, you realize that as some liberal critics have said, this is a book of blood. And it is. And it is. Those of us who like the biological sciences realize that God was absolutely correct before we ever understood these things about the blood of God. In Leviticus 17, we learn something about blood. We learn what God had put into blood that is significant every time we say blood. Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Without your blood, you can't breathe. Without your blood, you have no immune system. Without your blood, your body cannot cleanse itself. Without your blood, without those little platelets that carry blood, and by the way, carrying 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 the oxygen and carrying the iron that they do, they even somehow can put aside their nucleus while they do it. How that works is life. The fascinating features of both the plasma of blood and the platelets of blood and all the different aspects of blood are life itself. Without blood, you are dead. God has put life in the blood and we're just finding out about it. According to a great Bible expositor and commentator, Leon Morris, he says the word blood is used 460 times in the Bible. 460 times in the Bible, he says. 362 of them are in the Old Testament. Not surprising, a significant number in Leviticus. He goes on to say in Leviticus 17, you find the word blood 13 times. You also find in this chapter the key text in biblical theology on the significance of blood in salvation. We just read the verse, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar, listen, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls. So as soon as you say blood, you say life, and to say life blood is appropriate. And when we get to Christ, we realize it's his blood that was being prefigured with every sacrifice every time Israel did one. Leviticus, again, chapter 17, if you're still there, verse 3. The seriousness of blood and blood guilt and cleanliness before the Lord is again emphasized if you ignore the proper approach and the offering for sacrifice of an animal, an animal for slaughter or for food, we find this as a consequence. Whatever man of his house, of the house of Israel, who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who kills it outside of the camp, so wherever you kill it, be aware and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. So even there we get the rights of animals 
and that the life is precious that they have, that animals are not to be killed higgledy-piggledy with no feeling and no sense of value to their lives, but their lives have value, and the shedding of blood was very consequential. And even when they were killing an animal, even for food, a sacrifice was to be made, a presentation was to be made. And I think, uh, along with one commentator, that uh, you think he's got his thumb on the pulse here. The reason God did this was for protection. It was for protecting the people of Israel from attempting to use their animal or livestock and kill them before idols. And then to say, oh, I was just sw slaughtering it for, for food. And then the priest would say, well, that's fine, but you got to bring it before God. You got to bring it before God first. That man has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. You know, on one hand, God is so compassionate and so caring and so giving, but on the other, he is very exacting. We need to know God as both. In Leviticus 8, again, listen to this, a fellowship offering or a burnt offering must be offered before the Lord, the Lord only. And it is a symbol of fellowship, a fellowship with him and not with pagan gods. Verse 8, also you shall say to them, who whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offer a burnt offering or sacrifice, listen, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. An idea of withholding from the Lord is abhorrent. Even the use of their bodies for all Hebrews was also sacred. They were made in the image of God, but they were also called by the name of their God. They were his people. Where they went, the name of God went. They symbolized God among the world. Even circumcision was a mark of God on them, of a covenant people. Leviticus 18 reminds us of this. And I'm going to read a number of things. If you need to hold your kids' ears, do. But this is the Bible, and it's pertinent to our age. Be mindful that God's opinions about these things have not changed. We may not be under the Mosaic legal system we are under a higher system, the law of liberty, as James calls it, the law of Christ. In verse 21 of Leviticus 18, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech. That's akin to abortion. Worshipping Molech, the people would engage in adulterous sin, and children would be produced, and then they would offer them back to the god Molech, killing them in fire. We might say that sounds really horrible until you do a little research on Planned Parenthood and how we deal with abortion in this country, and you can say, that sin's here. Nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Verse 22 of Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination, nor shall you mate with an animal to defile yourself with it. Skipping down to verse 24, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled 
which I am casting out before you. Sometimes people say, how oh, it's so hard for God. Why did God make them kill all the Canaanites? Why did he tell them to send all the Amorites to their death, whether they be male or female or child and all those things? Here's why. They were a pagan people who were following unclean, unholy ways as an abomination before God, and God was protecting his people by saying to them, I have given you this land, now you be my hand of justice, you be my hand of righteousness, and you remove this stain from before my face and remove it from you. I want you to approach me. It is very similar to what we learn in Corinthians where God tells us not to be of the world. He tells us to come out from among them. Now, he does not mean that we have nothing to do with them, but we come out from among their uncleanness, from their sinfulness, and from their sinful ways. And if there ever was an age where the church needs to be standing up and saying, this is true and right and clean, and this is sin and abomination before the Lord, it was in the Old Testament, it is in the New Testament, it attacks the very person and name of God as creator who ordained man and woman one for another, who made children a blessing and his image makers on the earth, we may not steal from God or take that from God. That is an abomination. Get it outside the camp. But when we let it in, we are defiled. And they were defiled. He cast them out before them because of that. Leviticus 18, 28 He rewards them lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it. As it vomited out the nations that were before you. I do believe that there's something about the sin that men do that sticks to the ground. That sticks to the land. And God sees it and feels it and knows it. And I think... Sometimes we can too. And it's based on this. The land will vomit you out. I think of Cain killing Abel and God saying, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. The blood. Whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who committed them shall be cut off from among the people. I think the Old Testament needs to be taught. So the people understand today that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But yet God is still so kind, God is still so compassionate, that in the ignorance and weakness of man, he will reach out to them even with the gospel in the present day as he did in the day of the Apostle Paul. I want you to go all the way from the Old Testament now to the New Testament, the book of Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we have the Apostle Paul in Athens the great city of the Greeks, the land of the philosophers, those rhetoricians of old, those legal minds, those who can argue a case, and those who know the deeper things. The place of Socrates, the place of Aristotle, the place of Plato. Paul walks into the middle of the Areopagus, which means an open-air amphitheater wherein philosophical things were discussed, legal things were hammered out, And he, walking along the way, sees a pedestal with no God on it. 
He's seen the pantheon of gods as he's walked around Greece. I'm sure he, he saw in Athens, the Parthenon, and all these different things there. But then he goes into the Areopagus, and he remembers that he's seen this, this pedestal that had a plaque on it that said, To the Unknown God. So, so fastidious were the Greeks, were the Athenians of not offending any gods that they didn't want to sin unintentionally against any god. And so they made a pedestal with nobody on it, no image, just a plaque to the unknown god. And how appropriate and how, well, prophetic that God would have them do that and they would do that not even thinking of the one true God. But Paul then addresses them. Paul says in Acts 17, verse 23, Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him, him I proclaim to you. God, listen to how he presents God. He starts with creation. God who made the world and everything in it. You know, you want to start witnessing? Good place to start. God made the world and everything in it. Then his authority. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life and breath to all things. Meaning, he doesn't need you to carve an image of him. He is his own image. He is the unseen God. He says, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. I think we just solved the race relations problem once again. He is made from one blood. What did we say is in the blood? Life. You can trace if you're a human by the blood. You can tell what blood type you are as part of this humanity. I'll be positive. If you need any, I've got you. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. How long will the United States last? How long will any nation last? I tell you, God knows you don't, but he's done it with a purpose. And here's the purpose, says Paul. So that they should seek the Lord. So if your nation's going down the tubes, it's because you need to seek the Lord. So that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him. Why? And find him. Remember what I talked about? It's all about approach, coming to God. That they may find him, though he is not far from each of you, Paul proclaims. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. And now he quotes even their own poet saying, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, zero in here. Paul gets to the crux. Truly these times of ignorance. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant. Truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked. The old King James says God winked at. Meaning not that God didn't care, but that God was being gracious in their ignorance. But now, what's the deal now? 
but now commands all men everywhere to do what? Repent. Turn from following your idols as the Thessalonians did and serve the living and true God. Verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And everybody's with him up to this point. The authority of God, he's creator God. He has authority over the whole world. He made man and he placed man where he would. And the nations are being raised up and lowered according to him. And now he has provided a way even of justice. Repent now because there's justice coming. That should be part of our gospel presentation. He appointed a judge. He will judge the world righteously by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And that's where most of the Greeks walked away. That's where most people walk away. But just as God created the earth, you weren't there to see it, but you know it. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You weren't there to see it, but you know it. That's believer and unbeliever alike. They were ignorant, but now they have become responsible. Beware the gospel. As soon as the gospel comes to you, you now become responsible for the requirement of repentance, belief on God. Ignorant no more. Yet God has always even been compassionate on the ignorant. And for those going astray, I turn to Exodus now, verse 30, or chapter 32, verse 7. I'll start verse 8. Speaking of his own people, when he just brought them out of the land of Egypt, we read, God saying, they have turned quickly aside out of the way which I have commanded them. God said, come to the land I promised you. Come to me. Moses went away to get the law, and they went out of the way. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, small g, O Israel, that brought us out of the land of Egypt. Not only did they say this is a God, but they said, we're going to say that this golden calf is the one that delivered us from Egypt. Imagine if you're God, how you think of this. They took his own glory and gave it to a calf they had made. And verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make you... A, of you, a great nation. God says, I'm done with them. I'm going to just take you, Moses. I'll start over like I did with Abraham. We'll do this thing again. Now, obviously, this was a test of Abraham, not a test of God. And God was showing a high priestly ministry of Moses that Moses now employs, verse 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your breath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, Moses prays, and relent from the harm to your people. And we find that God relents. Moses has just patterned a high priestly ministry. 
a ministry that we have read about already in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my way, so I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest, and here is the ministry. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, of being defiled, of being unclean, of being away from his presence. But exhort one another today, daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For if we for we become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Remember, it says we're partakers of Christ if we hold our confidence to the end. Not that we're perfect in every way to the end. There's a big difference there. Finally, and I'll say these words which I never should and I will close. What does that mean anyway? It means I've noticed the clock. Letter C in your notes. His ministry is one of compassion. It's one on behalf of those in weakness who are weak or ignorant and going astray. But it is also one of sacrifice. Look at verse 3. Because of this, in Hebrews 5, 3, because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. His ministry requires sacrifice for sins. A sacrifice for himself and sacrifice for the people as well. Again, a unity of sinners. As soon as we say sacrifice, when we accompany it with blood, when we see the holiness of God before God at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, we're cognizant of expense. There is an expense from a sacrificial ministry, a ministry for sin. There is an expense, an expense to the priest. There is a cost to the sinner and the sinner's all. And there is a victim of the sacrifice, the bull who dies, the lamb who dies, Christ the Savior who dies in place of the sinner. And that sacrifice presented by the high priest to God. We need to think more about God what we're learning today, what we're going back and studying in the book of Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, etc. God is articulating his heart. His heart, the heart of God toward the ignorant. He is saying to men, though you be straying, though you be ignorant, Though you are sinners all, I have compassion on you and I provided a way for you in the Old Testament and one is coming that is better than all of these. You know, when God chose a priest, he could have chose a being like an angel and set that angel as high priest over his people. He could have chosen a harsh angel, 
a powerfully condescending angel, and certainly they should condescend because we are so weak and so pitiful in our sin. He could have chosen one that is sacrificially censorious. In other words, always calling out the faults of the people. But God is always calling two people in their faults, saying, be reconciled with me. He chose rather the greatest high priest, and we shall be studying him. For God himself offered up his son, Jesus Christ, in compassion. Hebrews has already proclaimed this in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, which means to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted, as we sang this morning. Hebrews 4 again, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore Listen, let us therefore, listen, come. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need. That's the high priest I confess. Is that the high priest you confess, who you depend on? then get right and believe in this one. You've got the wrong one. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day, for your word. Thank you for reminding us of our own ignorance and our own propensity to go astray. And thank you, Lord, that you've always provided a way through a priestly ministry to bring the ignorant and the sinning and the helpless under your sheltering grace to find mercy, to find grace and help with time of need. Bless your people in this to continue to come. Bless who has ever here, Lord, who has not ever come to find grace and mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, shed in their place on the cross, I pray, today. They would believe that truth, confess Jesus as their Lord, Savior, and High Priest, and that they would take time to share it with a Christian brother and sister today. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people say it, Amen.